0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: I'd like to kind of start a little bit at the beginning. I know that the movie that's being made about you while you were gone, a lot of it is about being abandoned by your mom. What did that kind of do to the family unit? Was your dad still around, and how was he affected by this?
2: First of all, let me just say that the movie really is more than just that. It's just, uh, it's really about my life, my work, and kind of um, how, and about my beginnings and the the piece of my life that I've I've refrained from talking about in, in all the interviews I've done you know, because I wanted to go ahead and tell it in my own words, in my own time, but um, it ends up really being, I think in large part, about how something that happened uh, so early in my life has gone on to, to frame my life in, to a large degree, to you know, be the underscore, underpinnings, and, and how that affects the choices I've made in my life and continues to affect. So I just wanted to point that out. In terms of the family unit, my, my dad took us after my my mother left, I mean, I think it was a separation that was very difficult and um, very painful for both of them. I've grown to learn some disturbing truths about why she left that I won't go into completely here. I need to learn more, but it was not a happy union. I think she really loved him, but he made it difficult for her to stay. And um, I think in, in some ways, I've always thought how magnificent that he, unlike so many men, wanted to hold on to us and make sure that we were okay. Um, he did apologize to me some years ago before he died for taking us, my sister and I, away from my mother and saying he said that he would have gone on to support us but not really been able to know how we were and to see us. So I had great respect for him for that, but I always suspected that part of it was also anger and spite, uh, like, well, you can leave, but you're not going to take our daughters away from from me. And because she did try to leave a few times and he would always come after her and take all of us home, the third time he did not, he... he, took just my sister and I and um, she took my half-brother who came from a father previous, uh, a husband previous to my father. So he took us to my grandmother's home in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. She owned um, one of the large, beautiful brownstones that, that a lot of the Italian immigrants bought when they came at the beginning of the 20th century to New York and We had a large um, Italian family there in Brooklyn, a lot of homes there, and, and so it was a good environment for us, but it wasn't stable. I mean, I apparently used to call everyone mommy, all my female cousins and aunts. I guess, not understanding why I didn't have my own mommy and why these other cousins called the women mommy, so why couldn't I? And at one point, my father, stupidly, when my grandmother became seriously ill, he, instead of placing us with some of the relatives, because, you know, he was a musician and he worked nights in in nightclubs and stuff, sometimes he was on tour, and so he stupidly put us in, in foster care. And that was extremely traumatizing. And um, I, was, I was somewhat abused and apparently so traumatized that I stopped speaking. And when we, I was four and a half, my sister was two and a half years older, my uncle, who uh, I used to spend a lot of time with, my, my uncle and aunt, he told my father that if he didn't get us out of there, that he was going to take us and adopt us. And my stepmother, the woman who would become my stepmother, had met me and fallen in love with me and told my father, "Let's come on, let's get married and make a home for these girls. So we were fortunate in that sense. My sister did not have a good relationship with my stepmother. She, I think, as a little girl, felt that she didn't trust any any more women and she did not want to share my father and she wanted to stay with my grandmother but I think I think for me it was a better situation and although my stepmother certainly had her issues she could be very um, physically and um, uh, verbally abusive and you know real bad temper but it did at least afford us some stability and um, you can really see from the photos. Some of which I've posted on our website. Actually, for while you were gone, um, there's one photo of me as when before my father remarried, and it's my birthday party, and I'm wearing this cute little Peter Pan um, matching hat and 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 purse. And I just look like such a sad little girl for it being my birthday. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you see pictures of me after my father remarried and I have a big smile on my face. And, you know, so it clearly was a, a good a good change in my life.
1: Did you go to Parsons School of Design?
2: I did. I did. I went to Parsons School of Design after high school.
1: I mean, I'm familiar with Parsons because of Project Runway, so is it all types of design, fashion primarily, or what did you kind of pursue there?
2: Well, I was a major in fashion illustration just as I was in high school, at the High School of Art and Design, and I loved uh, drawing figures. I was drawing pretty girls with beautiful clothes and gowns from the time I could hold a pencil and designing their dresses, so it just um, was a natural for me to go, I, I didn't want to design clothes in real life, but I loved illustrating the women wearing them. And so, yes, the, I, I was a major in fashion illustration, but the school had a, a far uh, broader um uh, you know, program, they, they had a whole variety of, of uh, directions you could take, programs you could major in from everything from illustration and commercial illustration to um, oil paint and, and um, you know, all kinds of graphics and um uh, design, design, package design. So it, there was a lot you could major in, even photography. But I actually didn't continue in fashion illustration after I, I left after a year because I had become rather political by then. I, um, I. Became kind of you know I started smoking pot which you know is the the era back then we're talking about sixty nine now it's nineteen sixty nine so my my eyes were opened up and my consciousness was raised and and I became a uh, I got into women's liberation as it was called back then and I lost interest I thought that this world of fashion was very shallow and and um, so I lost interest in that and it was probably a good thing because fashion illustration really um, went out of fashion, so to speak. It was taken over by photography, really, and um, it really was a, not a great, it didn't have a great future. And I went on to go to City College after that and major in fine art and psychology and education and a whole bunch of other stuff.
1: How did the women's liberation movement kind of enter your life and affect you?
2: It entered my life when I actually, after that first year at Parsons, I actually took a year off from school and um, I left home. I'd still been living with my parents. And in fact, I I really had never worked very much. I had a weekend job working in the BG department of Bergdorf Goodman's in Manhattan. Bergdorf Goodman's is is probably one of the most um, elegant and up scale department stores in um, Manhattan, and it's on the corner of 57th Street and Fifth Avenue, just about, you know, the premier um, address, and across uh, Caddy Corner from, uh, or diagonally across from Tiffany's, and and so as um, going to Parsons School of Design on weekends, my one job I had, other than babysitting as a, as a girl growing up, was uh, working selling clothes in the BG department, as in Bergdorf Goodman, but it was for young girls girls, um, you know, teenage, adolescents, young, college-age girls. And it was just really a, a great job to have because it was very she-she. And I remember one of the girls I worked with was the sister of Colleen Corby, the younger sister. And Colleen Corby was one of the top fashion models of the time. And I remember one time Jackie Kennedy coming in and buying something and so it was really fun it was really fun and um, that was my only exposure to, to holding anything resembling a real job before finally leaving home after that first year in college and I left home after having a massive fight with my father and I moved in with my sister who had an apartment in, in a, a rough area of the Bronx we had lived in Riverdale which was kind of a really pretty upscale area and um, I had to travel by train into Manhattan to go to my schools, and, um But I moved in with my sister, and it was a real change, and I loved it. I mean, we had a lot of fun. We had roommates, and, uh, you know, we made friends with all these other hippies living in the building. And, and um, you know, they would all gather at our house and smoke pot and <laughs> do what kids did back then, college-age kids. But I had to get a real job to pay the rent and figure out what I was going to do next. So I got a job in Ticketron, which was a new, up-and-coming um, business selling tickets over the phone. I guess it was, and um, I had I had to take a, a one semester of typing for some weird reason in high school, and it was a great thing. I'm really glad I did now because I can type the right way, and and um, and it makes things a lot easier. But at the time, I I needed a job, and I went and on an interview to be a, a, a private secretary for this young new executive they brought in from Texas to head up one of the departments. And um, apparently I heard after getting the job that there were a lot of women who were far more... Um, th- deserving of the job and, and, uh, m- had much better secretarial skills than I did. And, but I was cute and, and I wore really cute clothes and, um, so he hired me. The only problem was that after a while, um, in order to keep my job, I used to have to kiss him goodnight every night. And, um, you know, I mean, at least he was 24 and good looking and had actually been a fashion model himself at one time, but still, it was really awkward and uncomfortable and terrible. And in those days, no one even thought of complaining. Um, you know, there wasn't even a concept or a name for it. I didn't, you know, I didn't have anyone to go and complain and I just put up with it. I worked there about four or five months and then I quit. And then I had another job working at an exclusive tennis club owned by a, um, an Olympic former Hungarian Olympic champion. And I was a receptionist there and it was, um, on, it was, um, over grand central, and it was called the Vanderbilt athletic club, very exclusive. And so, he and his brother just adored me and they used to love talking to me and kind of teasing me and asking me what I did with my first boyfriend. And, and I mean, I was still bare, almost still a, a virgin. I was very innocent at the time. And, and, but all of a sudden, finally, I had to go into his office um, for something. And he just reached down and picked me up in his arms so that my feet were dangling and tried to kiss me. And, I mean it was really awful, and fortunately, he had these big windows overlooking the tennis courts where they would play and and I threatened to scream if he didn't put me down so that they would all hear me and he had to he had to let me go, and I had to quit that job so I mean things like this were happening left and right in those days there's a reason that we have to have laws against that now. This was a real eye-opener for me to, to be to go through such things. I mean it was almost a liability to be young and pretty and you know it it felt really threatening to me and plus, taking the train in and out of Manhattan every day and in those days a lot of the trains didn't have air conditioning yet and it was just so it was such a grind and my eyes were just so opened up not only to what women went through but to to see what you know everyday workers went through and and just what a grind it was and and I I really I had to get myself back to school which I did and um but I just, uh, where, where we were living, um, we were living right near a school, the Bronx Community College. And out of that college, there came a, a women's lib group, the Bronx Women's Coalition. And they had a storefront almost right across the street from the building my sister and I and my roommates lived in. And I went in and I started going to there. They had like open uh, one night a week they would have open night where, um, they invited the neighborhood women to come and, and, and attend their consciousness raising discussions. Another night they had, uh, on Friday nights, and, you know, I became a uh, a member. So on Friday nights we had a, what we called like, um, a coffee, um, what did we call it? It was like, you know, a little, um, like a, like
1: a coffee clutch? Yeah,
2: not a coffee clutch, no. <laughs> we would never call ourselves that. It was more like, um, you know, a place where we would all, you know, it was open to the community, so it was uh, men and women, and we would guitars, and we'd sit around and sing folk songs and serve coffee. And um, what did they call those back then? They, they would like, um, you know, little cafes you know and hippie cafes and and so we would hang out and and it was just really great experience so that's you know that's what led me into the women's movement and and out of the women's movement, I just uh, my eyes were really opened. It was such a wonderful experience. It was such a great sense of camaraderie between the women. I mean, I had always been close to women. I'd always had girlfriends and and gangs of girlfriends that I hung out with, and this was just another level up in the sense that we had political discussions and we talked about, you know, how um, the whole. The whole concept of women's liberation and why we needed it. And, you know, it was, it was, um, it was the feminist movement of, of the late 60s, early 70s. And um, it was just a, a great experience. We would uh, twice a year have the local hospital bring in equipment and we would offer the community, the women in the community, free pap smears and testing um, because we lived in a, a real working class community there where my sister had her apartment, and there were a lot of poor women, so this was a real service to them. And um, we would set up tables on, on Fordham Road in the Bronx and give out literature and, you know, um, try to get women to join and come to our uh, consciousness-raising discussions. So it was really great. It was really wonderful. It 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 really – I learned an awful lot. You know, I loved the women, my, my sisters, and, and, um, I came, you know, it, it just really helped me grow on a personal level. It helped me grow politically and, and gain a lot of awareness. Um, and, you know, it was just, um, it really, it really had, it had a great effect on, on me then, and really for the, it shaped me in a lot of ways for the rest of my, my, uh, my life, really.
1: So, how does this political spitfire go from
2: yeah. what you're describing? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> into the world of adult film and was there ever any kind of butting of heads when it came to that kind of the ideals from one to the other?
2: Well, I'll tell you, that was the million dollar question uh, or the $65,000 question I guess they used to say back then. I would be asked that after I'd gotten into the industry and at the time I really didn't know how to answer that. I was like gosh, I don't know. How do I don't. What have I done? I, I just don't know. But um, I, you know, I guess what happened after a couple of years in the movement there was um, I, you know, I went back to City College, the City University of New York, and took some great courses, and I started to kind of get really sick of New York. New York at the time was um, going through a difficult time economically. This is the early 70s now, and it was, um, you know, uh, Mayor Koch had, was, part of this whole thing they they did where they were opening up the mental wards and and because they were so crowded and and letting um, the people out, and finding apartments for them and giving them prescriptions for, um, you know, antidepressants and, and uh, anti-anxiety and all kinds of medications. And, of course, they wouldn't take them. So these people, many of them ended up on the streets. We had this huge... Um, thing of, of the, the Ouija men uh, where they would come out with these buckets of disgusting foul water and, and rags and, and just attack your car every time you stopped for a light somewhere in Manhattan and, and you know, intimidate you with their filthy water and sponges and, and, um, you know, ask for money. It was just, it was really becoming such a rotten city at the time. And I was just getting sick of it. Plus I, by that point, I'd really begun to, um, feel like the women's movement was changing and, and losing any sense of, of, um, you know, any sense of humor, any, any levity and, and, um, I, you know, it really was changing in the sense that there started to be a lot of conflict within the movement, and you know how there's this perception that the feminist movement was very anti-sex, anti-men, and you know in the beginning it wasn't. It, it one of the the aspects of the movement was the um, was women's right to equal pleasure and and a great sex life, and and we felt that it was. Time, you know, it was about giving women permission to explore our sexuality, to have fulfilling sex lives. It was time for men to learn about women's anatomy and what um, what women needed, how to pleasure women. You know, equal rights, equal equal sexual satisfaction. I mean, and that was a really fun aspect of the movement. And all of a sudden, there was this whole faction of, um, like radical lesbians, radical lesbian separatists. There was a sense that you were sleeping with the enemy if you, if you had anything to do with men. And I did have, I had my first boyfriend of, uh, we were together three years. And, and so I was looked up upon by some of the people like, you know, like I was sleeping with the enemy and it was really um such a a, a conflicting and challenging time politically too because, you know, I, I remember how um I mean at that time I was typical of the young women who were in the movement back then. You know, I didn't wear any makeup, I didn't shave my legs, um, I was you know, I was very against all of that all of that stuff. No makeup, no shaving of the legs and anything um that I thought was oppressive to women and and um but I was still an attractive young girl and I had a, a, a gorgeous full figure by that point, and, you know, there's not, I I didn't want to hide it, I wasn't ashamed of it, and I remember that this is almost humorous if it weren't so sad, but there was a, um, a, a, um, another sort of, how would I say, um, another part of our organization that was for for men and women, women and men, and it was more of a general um, political um the focus was more general in, in, in terms of um, the issues. It wasn't the women's movement. And um, and I didn't really go to a lot of those meetings. I was really just more interested in the, the women's group. and But I remember learning that there were complaints by some of the guys in that part of the organization. They were complaining that I dressed, that I looked too provocative that they were getting turned on, and and I just, you know, I think back on that now, and I think, oh, my God, these poor young men, you know, they're just you know, they have their, they're their raging with hormones and they were being made to feel guilty for being turned on. And, you know, I mean, and so, of course, the finger was pointed at me that I should be trying to do something to cover myself up or something. And it was so absurd. And I really began to feel like we were blaming, we were putting so much of the blame on men for, for women's problems. And I thought that um, it was time to... To look more inside myself and and um, to broaden my own scope and and um, I just decided that I, I wanted to leave New York, leave the movement for a while and um, I had um, I had been to San Francisco a couple of years before that for a week and I just fell in love with it and I knew I was going to come back one day. So sure enough, I there were. A few of the women from the group were taking a drive cross-country, and I ended up hopping in with them and driving out with them cross-country. It was a great experience. We had a lot of fun. And I brought nothing but a backpack and figuring that I, I put a bunch of stuff in storage, and I figured I would stay for six months and then come home, and I ended up staying for six years. So um, that's how I got to the West Coast. So I said, and you know that I got involved with a whole group of very avant-garde, crazy, um, very colorful, uh, like, gay men and what... Or, horribly called fag hags, some of the original members of the Cockettes. And because I had trained professionally in dance and I was a singer for many years and performer, and so um, I was a, a close friend of mine followed me out there and he, he turned out to be, we actually tried to be lovers, but he turned out to be a, a gay boy and um, incredibly talented, both artistically and also singing and dancing. We would go and, and win Lindy contests together and perform together. We had so much fun. And so when he followed me there and I found I ended up living in this fabulous um, place in in the Haight, um, in a one of the Have you been to San Francisco ever?
1: It's been a while, but yep.
2: So you know the rows and rows of streets with the beautiful Victorian houses, and um, and so we, you know, I found I ended up in one of those, and um, and so we hung out with all these really fun people. That I, I I mean, when I got there, I just I fell in with such a fun group of colorful people, I really felt like I had come home. It was, it was, I, I felt like I finally was where I belonged. Um, I wasn't political anymore. I just wanted to have fun. And, you know, I went from, you know, in, in, in it was sort of, you could see it in my clothes. I, I went, you know, from being the little fashion plate in, in high school and college to being the woman's lib hippie girl in, in jeans and black leotard tops and And now I was wearing all of these colorful, fun clothes from thrift shops from the 30s 40s and 50s and and just um, you know having a lot of fun it was it was very unconventional and very fun and so we were sort of discovered at this place called the stud where all the gay guys would go and dance all night and we were asked to be to perform in an angels of light show together and um, I wrote a song a little tomato which has gone on to be come uh, to this day, people still ask me to sing it and perform it. And I went on to do a lot of and performing and we did free theater all over the, all over the city and, and, um, just great people, great group of people. But, you know, everything was done for the love of it. I really had, I didn't care about making money back in those days. We really, we just kind of, you know, brushed off materialism and we just wanted to do things for the love of it and and the creativity and, and, um, I needed to still pay rent and pay the bills, and, um, you know, I did a variety of things for money. I was an artist's model, and I actually did sell some pieces in galleries occasionally, And um, but none of it was really reliable or dependable. So because I had um, gone to so many art schools and art classes where you would draw from nude models, I decided to look for work as a nude model and not just an artist model, but, you know, for sexy magazines, and it was actually, like, everyone just assumes that people that get into the business are exhibitionists, and and it's not, that's a gross generalization, it's not always true. I was actually very shy and and awkward about taking my clothes off, and I didn't really have a lot of confidence in, in having, you know, what my body looked like, so it was not an easy thing for me to do, but, um, the money seemed like it would be good, so I went to this agent who had placed an ad um, for nude models, and he, when he asked, got around to asking me if I would be interested in being in a porn movie. You may have heard this story; I've told this many times, but um, I, I. I was insulted and stormed out of his office. And of course, when I shared this with my then boyfriend, I was on to Serious Boyfriend Number Two by now. Um, He was a musician. And when I told him about the offer, of course, he thought it was a great idea for him. And um, he ended up getting cast in an Anthony Spinelli movie, uh, a real classic called Cry for Cindy. And I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with. Some of the people from back then or the classics, but Anthony Spinelli was very beloved, and people loved working for him. He did some of the the nicest um, work at the time in the so-called Golden Age, and and my boyfriend got the lead role as Cindy's um, boyfriend in the movie. And so I decided to go and see what it was really like. So I visited the set, and I was really surprised at how professional it was, how attractive everyone was, how what a large crew it was, that everyone was expected to come knowing their lines. Um, the you know the auditions were were pretty intense. So I decided to give it a go. The money was great. And, um, I felt that it was my right to, um, do with my body what I wanted to do. I felt, you know, that in terms of my, my feminist background, that, um, it was any woman's right to do as she pleased, as long as it was her choice. And she was not being forced into anything. It was all consensual. Um, and, uh, and that's really, you know, how I felt, and, and um, I reasoned that, um, in general, it was, you know, sex and lovemaking was something we all did behind closed doors, and what was the big deal about performing for people to watch and enjoy? Um, you know, it was the time of free love and the sexual rev- revolution, and, and um, you know, no, no serious diseases and nothing that couldn't be cured with a shot of penicillin that you didn't dare turn up on the set with anything like that. And, um, and that, was, that was really it. I mean, in terms of um, people challenging me with that, like, well, how could you have been a feminist and, and now done this? I mean, it, it was awkward, and it, it, I didn't always feel like I could answer them. I didn't always feel that I had the answer. And it was something that I had to think about. And ultimately, after only a handful of movies um, and five years later, it was something I decided to finally confront, not just in terms of how could I go in with my background as a feminist, how could I go into the industry, but um, also I recognized that I had a lot of ambivalence about being in, in these movies because when while my my group of friends and my circle were artists and musicians and writers and free thinkers. No one ever thought uh, judged me for what I was doing. I noticed that I did have, uh, when people like if I went to a party and I didn't know the people and they asked me what I did, um, I found myself um, uncomfortable in answering honestly. And so I realized that I had to take a look at that and think about whether this was something that I should be doing if I was this uncomfortable about it. And um, so so that was something that I, I really had to look at at that point in my life.
1: What was your first movie?
2: My first movie probably was just a really tacky little um, loop in San Francisco that I tried because I wanted to see if I could even... Do it, handle doing this in front of a, a crew of strangers and with a stranger. Um, in terms of the first movie that I was in, you know, I really don't remember. I really don't remember what the first, like I said, it, it, the first movie I was in was really a loop and probably a number of loops. In terms of the first feature, I just, I couldn't tell you what the first one is. It's it's all a vague memory now. It's sort of a memory now. I can tell you, I can recall doing about 25 movies in five years. And if you look at my um, uh, list of so-called work that I've done, movies I've been in, there are so many there that I don't recognize because so many of them were were the, the situation where Someone had footage or I I worked, I was in a movie for them and they took it apart and made seven more movies out of the same footage and, you know, mixed it up and got footage from another movie. And, um, I mean, it's just horrible how they, how they did that, you know, because we didn't get any paid for any of those. Of course, I could tell you what some of my favorite movies were. I would say probably some of the favorites were, well, I would say that the, the people I enjoyed working for the most were Ron Sullivan. Uh, otherwise known as Henri Bouchard, and Bob Chin, whose producer was Richard Aldrich. Ron Sullivan, I did October Silk for him uh, in my last year of, fil- of being in movies. And, um, and Bob Chin, I did two just totally silly, hysterical movies. The first one was Hard Soap, Hard Soap, and it was a takeoff on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman and um, it was Bob uh, John Holmes was in it my very dear friend Laurie and Dominique was in it she played uh, the Mary Hartman character I was Loretta her best friend but it was it was just a really perfectly silly silly movie a lot of fun I really liked working for them they were great guys they had a lot of integrity and were were just really nice to work for. And Ron Sullivan was just, I liked working for him because he was such a character. I mean, I had had a big crush on him when I first met him, but I just had so much respect for the work he did back then, and I I really liked it. There were a number of other things that that I've done that I think were pretty good. I think that um, Delicious was a really a really fun feature that starred Veronica Hart, my dear friend. I was sort of the co-star under her. And I just, you know, I look at it and I just get such a kick out of how silly I was. I mean, I was, I didn't have a lot of self-esteem when I was younger. I didn't really know what a pretty girl I was. I can look back on it now and realize what a beautiful young girl I was and that, you know, I think it's very sweet and I can look back and see what a, a good comedic actress I actually was. I was actually in a play with Divine. I played her daughter that played at the Kabuki Theater in San Francisco and the TV Reviewer called me a promising young actress. I think that I had a lot of talent I didn't realize I had, and um, and it was just it it was there were some a few experiences that were quite fun and and good for me, but there were some that were just most most were quite mediocre, and some were really awful. Um, I I worked for. I can't even remember the director's name now, but I did a movie called Sunny that I starred in. And, you know, there was an experience where, an example of how insensitive some of the directors in that business could be. I think, you know, when I I was flown out from L.A. uh, to New York to do it, and uh, Sean Costello, that's who who directed it. And I I think the investors must have wanted me in the movie. and, And when I got there, I think that he decided that he didn't want me in the movie, but he was stuck with me. And I was just so, you know, he made it so obvious that he was not really thrilled that I was the star of his feature, that it was just a really awful experience for me. I felt so insecure. And, you know, there's nothing worse than making your lead actress feel feel like that. I mean, it, it just, it's so inhibiting and um, so unfortunate And, you know, I, I really learned from experiences like that, how important it is to be supportive and, and, and really allow the people working for you to, to feel appreciated and, um, you know, it's, it just it makes all the difference in the world in terms of the kind of performance you're going to get out of them and what the experience is going to be for them.
1: How did you kind of decide to get out of the acting then?
2: Um, it was 1980, and um, for one thing... I'm, uh, when I talked before about realizing that I had ambivalence about being in the movies, that's really what led me to leave. I decided after four years that I would do one more year to to bank on my the name that I had gotten that had become fairly well known. Um, I came back. I had been wanting to come back to New York, so I, I started to get roles in New York and come back to New York to work, and um, I and at the same time i i knew that i after that year i would leave because i didn't want to get stuck in the business i was already 29 by that time i really it wasn't something that i had dreamed of doing i i felt like i had a lot of gifts that i was that i came into the world with and you know, to to make a living having sex on screen was was hardly a challenge for me at that point, and I just thought it was really time to to you know, like I said, make a few more movies that I could feel proud of, and um, and then leave. The other thing that that happened was that when I came to New York for one of my roles. Um, Leslie Beauvais had gotten the um, had gotten me that role. she was starring in it and she got them to fly me out for it and during that time she brought me to to meet um, uh, Chuck Vincent to see if he might want to hire me for something and um this young, very striking man from Sweden was there working for Chuck at the time. He had he looked like David Bowie, who was one of my favorite musicians at the time and I had a total crush on. And he he was um, he had this shocking white blonde hair that stood straight up and he was any of these big huge blue green eyes and and while i was interviewing with chuck he he just paired just he had these bright red jeans on and he and and baggy jeans and he just sat down cross-legged on the floor opposite me and just stared at me the whole time and um and so i met him and and one thing led to another and we fell in love and, and, um, like I said, I'd been wanting to get back to New York. And so I ended up, um, coming back to New York and I, at the time was, um, my friend Joe Morocco, who I talked about dancing with before, who followed me to San Francisco, had by then moved back to New York before me. He had this fabulous apartment at the Edsonia on um, the Upper West Side, this huge apartment, and and um, uh, and so I was staying with him and and falling in love with Pear and and um, and that's where I made my so uh, so we he was from Sweden and he, he wanted to get a green card and he could have gotten in other ways. His family had money but he he needed to try to get me to move in with him somehow is basically what he was trying to do. So he proposed that we get married to make it easier for him to get a green card. And I told him that I wouldn't marry him for his green card, but I would get married if, if he wanted to make a real stab at it. And he, um, he of course, wanted to. And he I made him get down on his knees and propose the real way. And uh, we got married after six months, a very unconventional wedding. It was really hilarious. We married in City Hall, and he wore a black parachute jumpsuit, and I wore a black satin original 50s dress. And Leslie Beauvais was my, my maid of honor, and she came. She showed up at... um at City Hall, um, at the Justice of the Peace, decked out completely in hot pink spandex. It was such a riot. And um, Chuck Vincent threw this big party for us in his loft. And so that was our wedding. And um, I've always been monogamous when I fell in love, so I knew that. I really, it was it was coming toward the end of that year that I was going to make my last year in movies anyway, and I knew that I didn't want to be with any other men, um, and I also knew that you really, you don't want to be, you don't want to work with someone um, and make them feel, make them know that you don't want to be there with them. Um, it's not the way to make a great scene, and I didn't want to make anyone feel badly, so um, I realized that I really had to make my exit soon. So I did about three more movies. Um, uh, one was Delicious, that movie that I described before. The other one was Fascination for Chuck Vinson, which would I would say actually was one of my other favorites in that it was really a hilarious and wonderful movie. Ron Jeremy was the star of it. It was just, it's classic. He played, I played his younger sister, and so he played this this really nerdy guy who moves to finally gets out of his house and gets the he looks um he buys a book on how to get laid, and he sets up this ridiculous apartment with with disco lights and everything, and um, so that he can meet girls. And it's just it's a it's a hilarious movie, great cast, great acting, and um, and then the other real slant song to porn for me was Blue Magic, and that was a movie that I wrote and starred in, and it was just a, a beautiful. Um, uh, period piece about a witch um, who lived in a in a mansion and and um, very mysterious woman. And uh, it was all a, a beautiful, authentic turn of the century Victorian costumes to the underwear and Gibson hairdos, fabulous cast. All my, I I cast all my friends in it, like Samantha Fox, Veronica Hart, Merle Michaels, who did a whole interpretation of a woman who gets um, uh, hypnotized the witch turns her into a, 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 a little cat and she does all this pecking and kneading and, and just really funny scene and uh, Jack Wrangler was the male lead and he's just a really good actor so that was my, my last movie I did, my swan song, was Blue Magic and, um, and that was it, I, I left in 1980 And, um, and I threw myself right into therapy to find out why I went into movies. I, I decided that I had to be clear on the choices I made and make sure that I was okay with those choices and not drag around a bunch of baggage behind me and discomfort. And, and, um, and I went into therapy with this brilliant woman um, who I dedicated my book to, actually, um, a woman named Linda Hirsch, who I ended up telling a lot of my girlfriends about, so that she, a whole bunch of us ended up doing therapy with Linda, all the Club 90 girls except for Veronica Hart, and um, and I, I, you know, the amazing thing about that was that I went into this therapy to understand my, the choices I made, and what was supposed to put closure to the whole Candida Royale chapter basically opened up a whole other Pandora's box and led to my starting Femme Productions.
1: You mentioned Club 90. What is that?
2: Club 90 is a support group for women who have all been in the sex industry, and it was it born out of um, it, it came out of a baby shower that we all threw for Veronica Hart. She had been married about a year or so, and she was having her first child, and um, we we threw it at um, at Annie Sprinkle's house. Uh, Gloria Leonard helped organize it. And um, we all just, you know, it was this big, wonderful party. A lot of Veronica's um, fr- other friends from outside the business and family came also. But the last ones to remain... Uh, at the end of the party were all women from the business um, including Veronica Vera Annie Sprinkle of course it was her apartment Veronica Hart of course it was her baby shower Samantha Fox Susie Nero Kelly Nichols Uh, Sharon Mitchell was probably there just a whole bunch of of us girls and we had such a fabulous time that we all said at certain point you know we should all do this more often we should get together and hang out I mean we were singing and dancing together like like little girls and just having such a great time and and um you know we all agreed we should continue to do this and of course a few months went by and we didn't um but at that time Annie Sprinkle called me up and and said, you know, I'm, I want to get out of the business. I'm really having a hard time doing it. Um, I need, to, I need to, to deal with this, and, and um, I'd really like to go talk to someone professionally. You said you had a fabulous therapist, and, and would you share her with me? And I did, and she started going to Linda's, but she also said, let's start that support group. It's time to start it, and um, and so we did, and, and it started out as um, Annie and uh, Veronica Hart, Veronica Vera, myself, and uh, Gloria Leonard, and then also Kelly Nichols and Sue Nero. Uh, Kelly and Sue dropping out after the first year, but the rest of us continued to move for, to, to meet um, as long as we all lived in New York, and when when some of us started to move away, we would still do it whenever we were in the same place at the same time. We did it through phone. We did it through internet, email, and we still do it. I mean, it's remarkable. We've, we've remained close all of these years. We've become like family. We dearly love each other. And the name came from the fact that We met at Annie Sprinkle's house at 90 Lexington Avenue, where she lived at the time for many years, and um, so we decided to call our, our group Club 90, and that's how it got the name.
1: So how did Femme Productions kind of come about?
2: I went through this whole process of looking at my history, you know, I realized looking at my ambivalence about being in movies, and I realized that I had to take a long, hard look at what I thought of being in porn movies and what I thought of porn movies in general, Um, the concept of them, the concept of, of adults performing sexually for others to view. And I had to do it from my own heart, my own soul, my own mind. I realized that I had to... Try and not be influenced by the culture we live in, because you know that's how you come up with with current um, morality and morals. Is is the the culture helps set them. You know, we decide that women should not um, have. Public sex, that it's, um, it doesn't fit in with our concept of women's role in society. And, um, women are supposed to be the arbiter of morality. They are supposed to, you know, men will be men, you know, they go out and have sex with, with women they don't know and with hookers, but someone has to keep the family together and, and keep morality in place. And so that's going to be women. And so condoning, um, women's, uh, the behavior of women who go out and have public sex and get paid for it just does not fit in with that role for women. So, um, I, so we have ways to keep women in their place. Um, women are made to feel ashamed, um, like bad women, if they do something like that. And that's why I felt shame, even though I thought it was perfectly fine for women to to perform sexually for others to view and enjoy, as long as it was consensual and no one was getting hurt and everyone was of age. Um I thought that was fine, and yet I was still feeling a, a sense of shame, and it's because that's how we're supposed to feel. So I had to find a way to not buy into the the public uh, morality, and um, it wasn't easy. I I I looked at you know a lot of historical. Um, history of, of, um, sexuality, of art, of sexual art, erotic art, explicit erotic art, you know, and, and I had to think about whether there really is something bad. Had I taken part in something that is harmful to women, that harms society by being in these movies. And through it all, I, I, did come to feel that there is nothing wrong with it. When you really take it apart, when you really dissect it, what is harmful about it? Um, And I just, I couldn't identify anything that was truly harmful about performing sexually for others to view, as long as it was consensual. No one was getting hurt. There were no children or or animals involved. And so, um, through coming to terms with it, and with Myself for doing it. I mean, I also had to look, of course. Well, why did you do it? Why would you do something that you knew would bring public scorn and and, and judgment, and that would close certain doors of opportunity to you? And you know, there were some um, positive reasons I did it. Um, it was, it it, you know, it was harmless as far as I I really believed. And um, for me, it was a lot more bearable to earn a living that way than. Um, going and getting another office job and, and spending my hours nine to five every day in a job I hated, having to put up with creepy men that made me kiss them. And so I had to look at the negative reasons that I might have done it. And I, you know, I looked at certain things. Um, I I think that part of it was, Um, my father at a certain point in my life as an adolescent and growing up became very um, unhappy in his own life and he took it out on me and made me feel very unloved and unappreciated and I think that um, part of it was really, you know, it's almost a cliche but in a way I was looking for daddy's love and approval and, you know, when you can't find it at the source you go looking for it in a million places and and of course you Never really feel it because no one can replace daddy's love. But that was part of it. And um, But aside from all that, I mean, once I worked through all of this stuff and I was okay with what my choice is and, and I had come to terms with it and, and truly believed that I hadn't done anything bad or harmful, and um, I started to think about the, you know in thinking about the concept of, of um, adult movies and people enjoying them and I started to think about it. actually the one thing that that did bother me about the movies well a couple of things one was that they were made so graphically so unnecessarily graphically they were made with such for most most part except for a few filmmakers like that I've mentioned like Anthony Spinelli Ron Sullivan I mean most of it was really poor poorly done, there was very little artistry in it. I thought that, you know, um... People weren't receiving very good information. I thought if you're going to take people's money and people are going to go look at these movies, especially all of these guys sitting in these dark theaters by themselves, and what are you really giving them back? You know, um, a lot of it was so much misinformation. They certainly, you know, if any young guy watched it or anyone watched these movies and thought that women really went into the throes of... of, of um, passion and, and uh, you know if if what really turned them on was having some guy come in their face then you know they better enjoy those dark theaters because they're not going to get anywhere with women. I just thought that there could be so much more to these movies and, and, and in addition I really thought that um, there was no it really bothered me that there was no women's voice and that these movies were made on the backs of women but Women's sexuality was not at all addressed. It wasn't explored. Um, we we basically were told what to do on the set and how to do it. There was little interest in showing how women really were pleasured, how you could really help a woman have an orgasm, and that kind of, that bothered me. I thought that you know. To sum it up, there's nothing wrong with the concept of adult movies, but in a lot of ways, they were pretty tra- trashy. They were they were not well done. They gave a lot of misinformation, and there was no woman's voice. And so I started to think about, well, how could you do it differently? How would you put a woman's voice to it? Um, and I started to feel... Challenged and, and um, curious about how you could put a woman's voice to these movies. And, um, and it kind of, and this all was happening now in the mid 80s, like about 83, 84. And it was like the perfect storm was all happening. It, it all took place in the sense that um, the women's movement had given women permission to explore their sexuality. There, all of a sudden, there was the advent of home videos, so that there was a, a, a safe, private place to look at these movies. Men were, but there was no really very few movies for women to look at and and really enjoy. Men were starting to voice the, the desire to watch them with their partners, but there was very little to bring home and share with their partners. It was not going to get the results they hoped for. And um, and at the same time, I was looking for a new career. And I could see now with home video and cable TV that my name, Candida Royale, was not going away. Uh, these movies were all being reissued. I mean, I, I really thought when I was making them that, they would play in a theater a few times and, and basically get put away in a vault and never be seen again. And that obviously was not going to happen. So all of a sudden my name was, all these movies were coming out again. My name was out there, but not associated with anything I was particularly proud of. And um, so with all of this coming together, um, women being curious men wanting to watch them with their partners, Advent of Home Video, a safe place for women to look and explore. Um, and, it, and it all came together, and I started to think, well, hey, this could be really interesting. What if I try to do it? And um, I think that I had all of, the, all of the qualifications. I had been in and around movie sets for a number of years. Um, I had a name... I knew how it was done, Um, and, you know, a a lot of filmmakers at that time wanted to explore eroticism, but they were afraid it would hurt their career. I had nothing to lose. I already had a big red letter on my chest. I had been in movies, so um, I was already, uh, you know, I I was already labeled a, a scarlet woman, and so I just thought, you know, i could be the perfect let me let me try my hand at it and um, at the time i was married to this swedish man whose family had made their fortune his father made his fortune on spaghetti westerns in italy and um, at that point he what he had started um, the first successful uh... video distribution company in scandinavia and um he also happened to be one of the investors in Chuck Vincent's bigger-budget movies like Roommates, Games Women Play, and he, um, this this woman looked me up who had come to New York looking to start um, to start a line of erotic videos for women um, that were like MTV erotic rock videos. And at the time, I had thought, um, I was trying to figure out, um, how do you do this? You know, I don't want to just put a big, big soap opera plot to it and have the same sex. It's the sex that's really boring and that needs to be changed. And I thought she had a great idea by making them into erotic rock videos. So she came over. We had our first meeting. And it just so happened that my, my in-laws were at our house getting ready to go back to Sweden after visiting us for a week. And my father-in-law overheard us talking. And when he got home, the next day he called up my husband, my ex-husband, and said, I think that Candace's idea is brilliant. And tell her that if she can go out and find the distribution, I will finance it. So that's how it all happened. Good luck editing all of that together. I'm a real gabber. I'm sorry. I don't know how to answer things briefly and concisely. You have your job of editing to do. Candida, you're pushing against the status
1: quo, though. What kind of... You must have gotten some sort of backlash for what you're doing.
2: Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Backlash? I I certainly got um, a lot of criticism and... um, People scoffed at me for sure. Um, when I went looking for distributors, I hit up the you know top three. I think Western Visuals was one, Caballero was the other, and um, and Russ Hampshire's VCA. Caviar and Western Visuals pretty much, you know, patted me on the head and said, oh, nice idea, Candida women are not interested, it's a boys' club. And, of course, that just made me all the more determined to prove they were wrong. And I knew they were wrong. I really sensed in my gut that this was something, this time had come. And Russ, on the other hand, had known me previously, and he also didn't really believe in it. But, you know, all he had to do was, was put up a few bucks to do the distribution, and, um, you know, i was just bring him a finished movie. And so he said he would he would go ahead and release it for us. And, um, you know, to his amazement, I, even with very little advanced publicity, they did so well that that after the first one called FAM came out, he started to at least give it some good publicity so that Urban Heat and Christine's Secret really did well. I mean, the, the first three did very well and I had my naysayers the that whole this whole clique of reviewers out in California and and I had been living in New York by now but this whole clique like you know Bill Margold and and um um a whole bunch of those guys out there I forget what the other guy's name who was really well known he's he's gone now but I can't think of his name now but um they all you know they would they would scoff at my work and say it was like you know um like the equivalent of the out of equivalent equivalent of muzak I think they they resented it because I was turning it into something nice for nice women to watch, and I think they liked the idea of being a bunch of of rebels and and um you know they didn't you know I was this little upstart and um and but you know um, that was that was really it. I mean I I and I I had Women Against Porn calling me a, a, um, a pimp and saying that um, I was probably just a, a puppet, you know, being used by some of the big companies. And um, I would do debates with them, and and they would try to, you know, prove that I was just another nasty pornographer being used by the. By the men in the business, and but you know, really, I I I've got surprisingly little, um, little. Uh, what did you call it again? Uh, backlash. I think maybe because the bottom line is that um, money talks, and when they saw how successful it was turning out to be, um, you know, what could they do? Even Russ Hampshire, I have to say, I remember going and having a meeting with him. He was so angry at me, he pounded his fist on the table and said, There is no couples market. Women are not into this He was just so furious and a couple of years later he was no longer distributing my work. I had taken over my own distribution and he amazingly, you know, sat down and he said to me, I have to hand it to, candy to you, Candida, you are a visionary. You were right all along. Made me feel great. <laughs> Even Bill Margold. I remember we were. Um, I my head salesperson was this woman named Vivian Forlander, and she was a real character. She she was a real character. She was also very very smart and very intellectually bright. And um, and. Um, we were at the VSDA show when, when the adult industry still had, were taking booths, when there was a VSDA summer show in Vegas. And um, and Bill Margold was there, and he was constantly putting me down in one way or another, really trying to get my goat. And, and um, he was, you know, I was kind of having a, 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 a sort of, Debate a row with him, and Vivian came over and and stepped in, and she started to take him on, and she was much better than me, much better than me, and 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 he just could not stand up to her. Finally, and in the end, he uh, literally we have a photo fo- we have photos of this. We actually took photos. Got on his hands and knees and took my hand and kissed it and admitted that he was wrong all along and um, and he had to give it to me and he had uh, absolute respect for me and it was great it was great it was that's not it couldn't have been easy for for Bill Margold but we remained friends ever since.
1: So when did you kind of become a brand? Because now you are doing Femme Productions, you've got natural contours, and you wrote a book. Did all of that stem out of Femme?
2: Oh, yeah. I knew that I had a winning concept. I knew that I had a hook. Back then, people still saw women in the the business uh, basically as victims, as losers, as hookers, for me to come along, um, a woman who was fairly well-educated, could talk and chew gum at the same time, really had something to say and could say it well for the most part, uh, They, I, I knew that this was going to grab people's attention and that I was, you know, we didn't have a lot of money for for advertising and marketing, but we had me, and um Fortunately, one of the courses I took on a total fluke in college at, when I went back to City College was public speaking. And I just took it on a fluke. And um, I will never forget, my. We, the first thing we had to do was a three-minute speech about anything, and I did one about how to survive riding the subways in New York during rush hour. And it was tongue-in-cheek, and, and I remember in the beginning standing up there, my knees were literally shaking. I was so nervous. And by the end of the course I had gotten so good at 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 giving speeches and doing public speaking that my professor who was a woman thought that she suggested I go into public speaking as a career. And I had no idea what that meant and I just I never thought gave it another thought. And so all these years later when I had to find a way to promote my work I realized, wow I know how to speak in public. There we go. I learned how to put a press kit together. I started sending them out. I started to get little pieces of, of um, little bites from the press. And um, they would call me up for interviews and I would give them interviews. And then finally... And and I was, you know, I started out being the writer-producer. I wasn't even directing in the beginning. My partner, Lauren Neame, was the one who wanted to direct, and I gave it to her. I didn't have any ambition to be a director. I didn't know the first thing about directing. And um, so I really didn't intend to make myself the brand. The brand was supposed to be Femme, Femme Productions. But as time went on and after the first two movies, I realized that I seemed to have a natural flair for directing, for relating to both the talent and the crew. I was I was very good at at. Um, relating to to all of them with the crew I had no qualms about letting them know how little I knew and 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 uh learning from them I learned to you know my my husband by the way at the time was a really fine young producer and assistant director and um And so that when we, when Lauren and I started out, the whole idea was that Pale was off doing his own stuff, you know, he worked on adult and and straight movies, and he would come home from work and he would, I would run past him all the things I did um, to produce the first movie and get his advice, and everything was going along fine. So I learned a lot from him. And um, so I really, like I said, I I didn't intend to become a brand. I really thought that Femme was the brand. But as it turned out, as I started to do more and more interviews, um, uh, my friend, Merle Michaels, actually sent me a, a uh, piece from Glamour that was a shout-out to to their readers Um Women, tell us what you think. If you think that there's an audience, are women interested in erotica? They didn't even mention movies. I mean, even erotic books were not heard, for women were not heard of then. And you um, we're talking about 1984-85 now. And so, they wanted their readers to tell them what they thought if they were turned on by erotic novels or short stories and and was there really a market for women so of course I took this and ran with it I put together a great press kit I sent them my my first movie or maybe my a couple of uh, no actually I'd done all first three and um and uh and I started it off with um I dear so-and-so you need to know about femme productions and um so, the whole article, and they did a whole article that started off with FEM Productions. That was picked up by UPI, um, who, it ended up in the New York Times. Phil Donahue Show called me. I ended up on a big, uh, one of his uh, tours across the country um, with a huge audience. And, and a, um, Catherine McKinnon was on the panel. And um, it was a, a really big deal. I was so nervous. I almost... Couldn't breathe, and um, and that's from there. It all took off. It just all took off. Um, it just it became it became a sensation. All of a sudden, erotica for women, adult movies for women, porn for women was the big talk, and it, it was just great. But what what I came to see, as it turned out, was femme was not the name they remembered. Candida Royale was so this whole thing, it was never about me. It was never supposed to be about me. I was not, I didn't go into this with some big ego thing of wanting to be the star of my own show. It's just, that's what turned out to be the name that that people remembered and that women remembered. I was the the face um, attached to the whole concept, the whole thing. And that's how it happened. That's how I became the brand.
1: So how did you decide to write your book?
2: I knew that I wanted to write a book, but I didn't know what I wanted it to be about. And I had friends who, by that point, were telling me, Candice, Candida, it's really time to write your book. you got to write a book. And um, I had fortunately made friends with a, a really nice woman who was extremely influential. She was a very successful young producer. She worked at MGM at the time. Um, and she was she really was um, cared for me a lot. We, were, we became very good friends, and she she got she opened up all the doors to the top A list literary agents. I was so fortunate, so that she basically gave she talked me up to them. And um, she helped me, you know, figure out how to put together a good press kit. Because what started to become important as early as back then was um, publishers were now looking to publish books by authors who already had a following. So I certainly had a following. And... I had interviews with all of these um, A-list agents, literary agents, and it was great. I mean, I got to choose my literary agent, and um, I I went with um, a lovely woman who is right around my age, maybe a little younger, named Kim Witherspoon. We worked together on coming up with the book that I should write, and it turned out to be, um, you know... I guess what it was was that I felt like I had I'd learned so much about sex, about relationships, through, through my own life, you know, I, I came of age during the so-called sex revolution. Um, I'd learned so many things. I ended up in the sex industry and learned so much. Because of the sex industry, I ended up in the whole sexology industry because um, there was one particular woman who really loved my work and took me under her wing, a woman named Dr. Sandra Cole, who happened to be the president of ASECT at the time, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And she felt that I should really be associated with, the, with their industry, that my work was clearly erotica. And she invited me to come and speak at the um, National ASECT Convention at the time and, um, and then to become a member of ASECT and um so now i had i would i would attend i would i would give presentations i would go to the courses so i felt like i had so much i wanted to share and i was already doing a lot of sharing through my movies i'm i'm someone who loves to share what i learned share what i have um the way i shared my therapist and so i but i felt like there wasn't a lot more that i could do within the adult industry that and and that I was only, I was only reaching a certain number and a certain type of audience through the movies that I wanted to reach more women. And I wanted to reach, um, your typical, uh, housewife who really needed to learn things, you know, who, who wanted to keep her marriage together and, and who wanted to learn how to get her needs met and how to better communicate with her husband. And, um, and so I, I had all of these things I wanted to share. And so um, that's how How to Tell a Naked Man came about. It's it's a facetious title. It's a fun title that obviously a takeoff on the fact that I direct naked men. But it really was, it it really is an informative book. It it really has a lot of wonderful things to share. Um, What I felt was that there was so, starting to be so many how to have better sex books coming out. But as long as women weren't comfortable with their own sexuality and didn't you know that they, you know as long as they were uncomfortable with their sexuality all the great books in the world were not going to help them have better sex that what was important was for women to know themselves sexually to um to accept themselves sexually become comfortable with their own sexuality and finally to learn how to ask for their sexual needs because that was the other piece of it i i had um Uh, In about 1993, I met this, this, I was no longer married by this point, and I met this very handsome, sexy guy, and we started to date, and I remember telling a friend of mine that I really liked him, we really liked each other, but the sex wasn't great for me, and he, you know, I didn't know what to do about it, so she said to me, Well, Show them what you like. Tell them what you want. And I was so shocked at the simplicity of what she said, but I just couldn't imagine how I would do that. I suddenly was like, oh, my God, just come out and tell them what I want and how to do it. And I realized that I was really, I didn't know how to do that. And the idea of it really just scared me. I didn't know what to do. I felt so inhibited. And I thought to myself, my God, if I feel that way, imagine how many women must feel that way. And so I just thought, um, you know, this this is, this is a great, if, if I'm feeling this way, there must be a lot of women that could use this information and, and could use this advice. And so again, my book turned out really to be basically how to get to know and accept yourself sexually and how to learn to ask for what you need and it was laid out in um a way that was that was like producing like um producing and directing a movie so that um, it was you know i would take i would take people I would use the process of directing and producing a movie as a metaphor for getting to know yourself, exploring yourself. Um, so for example, there's a section where that I call you know designing your set and and I talk about how to create a really sexy, erotic environment that's that's pretty, that makes you feel comfortable, that highlights your best features, so that sort of thing.
1: How did the idea of doing while you were gone kind of come about?
2: I've been wanting to write a second book for some time, and and, uh, I want to write a book about my life, and I there's so many books coming out by, by porn stars about their lives. And and I thought, well, how can I make mine stand out? And how can I appeal to people? I I don't want to just write about the feminist pornographer. That's going to limit my audience. Um, And so I thought, I thought, you know, it really is time now that I, Unfortunately, I know that my life is going to be shorter than I had imagined. Um, though I'm really not a death store, even though some of the stories make it sound like that. But um, I just felt that it was time for the the, the last great piece of work that I want to do or the last thing I want to do in my life is to find out the truth about my mother and what happened and why she left and, um, learn about who she, who she really was and is. And, and, um, and so I thought that this would be a great way to frame my book and make it different than everyone else's as well. And, um, a documentary is something I've been in so many people's documentaries and I love the documentary form. I've, a lot of people have want, have said that I should do a documentary about my life as well. So I thought, why don't we do it? Why don't we do both of them? And, um, and what a great way to frame the documentary also to let the camera follow me on this process. And, um, And, you know, as and and follow me as I go and have my first meetings with people, with family that I as I find them. And um, so that's really how it came about. I mean, it's just I've always loved the documentary form. And I it's time for me to write another book. And and it's time for me to find out the truth about my mother. And I think they all work together. Now, you know, the Kickstarter has been a disappointment, um, but we knew that we may not reach our goal. We're we're not asking for fifty thousand dollars. We're asking for one hundred thirty five thousand dollars. And it it was a lot of money. I think in hindsight, I realize now that we probably shouldn't have done it during the summer and maybe we should have done it in piece pieces, piecework. Um but you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. And um the thing is that we do have a plan B, and I think it's going to work. Th- we're going to um, make make a, uh, a way for people to continue to donate available to them, for people who want to continue to support. So instead of the the, the money not being taken out of people's accounts, we're giving them the possibility to, to go ahead and donate it anyway, and we will... Um, we're going to use the money we've made so far, and um, and pay for the what it costs to travel and go meet my family, and um, go back to where my mother was from and walk the streets that she walked and and um, and just get all of that really great stuff in the can because if we don't shoot it, we'll never have that opportunity again, and um, and then we will go ahead and and put a rough cut together and go out and, and raise the rest of the money with it. And at the same time, also, my agent, Kim Witherspoon, is, is thrilled with the, um, the book idea. I'm going to go to work on my book proposal, and I'm really excited about that. I've grown very fond of writing. I love writing, and I'm really looking forward to getting it down in my book as well.
1: Tell me a little bit about Shana McDonald.
2: Shona McDonald. uh, Yeah, I said it wrong in the beginning, too, until she corrected me. She is someone that I met, um, which you probably read. I met when she interviewed me a year ago for a documentary she's doing about women, sex, and shame. And... We, you know, I've done so many interviews. Most of them um, are, you know, the the same questions over and over again, which is fine because I know people want to get the background information. But when I end up in one that's really different and really challenging me and forcing me to think about other things and, um as hers turned out to be, then I really enjoy them, and with her I enjoyed it even more because she she was so lovely and so sensitive, and we clearly shared so much, uh, so many of the same feelings and thoughts and views about things and philosophies and politics that it was just a sheer pleasure talking to her, and um, so. I I just really liked her. I really liked her, and I think I may have even thought back then, wow, wouldn't it be great to to do a documentary with her? I had been working on the potential documentary with someone else at the time, someone else who's also very gifted, very talented. Um, I liked him a lot. He was fun. His work is known and successful, but um, it became clear to me that it may not have been the right match. So um, when she called me out of the blue last March and asked if she could speak to me again and, and ask me a few more questions, I was perfectly happy to do it because I liked her so much. And, um, you know, when I told her about my project, she offered to see if there was a way maybe she could help me get my story told. And I was just thrilled and delighted. And um, and I knew then and there that I was going to do everything I could to make that happen. So that's, that's what ended up happening. And, you know, I, I think that it's been a little disappointing for her too. I don't think she really relishes the thought of doing it in pieces like this. She really wanted to get the whole budget in at once. I've always known that there is the chance that she could say to me, "Look, I don't want to do it this way," and it's it's you know a nice try, but I'm not going to go any further with it. But it seems like she does want to move forward with it, which I'm happy about, and and um and I guess I do too. I mean, it, it's not. I would have preferred to have had all the money show up and not have to do it in piecemeal like this. I don't have a long time to work on a movie. I have no idea. You know, the problem with my cancer is that I don't get good long remissions but, you know, it does get cured immediately. I go into remission right away. My energy comes back wonderfully. I'm really strong and resilient. My body just takes so much. It's unbelievable. But um, there's a great new drug on the horizon that the FDA is reviewing that is all genetic-based um, I got my cancer through genes, through family DNA, and this—it's been sh- which um, has been shown to be better. Women who get breast or ovarian cancer through DNA actually have a better prognosis. And so this new drug on the horizon is supposed to give us far better and longer remissions. So I do have great hope that I'm going to be here for quite a while. But still, in all, I—I—I I, I don't want to take too long doing this. So I do hope to get it done fairly, you know, at least in within two years. And my book, too. I mean, uh, finish, writing, finishing, and getting a book out is also about a two-year process. So I have to stay well. <laughs> and, and I also got auditioned for and got accepted into a, a wonderful chorus named Sweet Adelines. And, um, and I, I get such joy out of it. Um, it's so great to get back to my singing roots. Um, that it, it's also given me a sense of something to live for. So it's, it's um, I have a lot to live for right now, so I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. The
0: stars won't come out If they know that you're about Cause they couldn't match the glow of your eyes Who am I? Just an ordinary guy Trying hard to win me first prize Oh my candida, Candida. we could make it together The further from here, girl, the better Where the air is fresh and clean my hand and I'll lead you. Oh, I promise life will be sweeter because it says so in my dreams. You know, the future is bright. The gypsy told me so last night. Said she saw my children playing in the sunshine. And then was you and I in a house baby no lie There's so in my dream So in my